0: As James said, the Bible reading is Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 39. Jesus criticizes the religious leaders. Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head of the table at banquets and in the seats of honour in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here On earth as father. For only God in heaven. Is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher. For you have only one teacher. The Messiah. The greatest. Among you. Must be a servant. For those who exalt themselves. Will be humbled. And those who humble themselves. Will be exalted. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, you don't go in yourself and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert. And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Blind guides. What sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple. But then, at its bidding, you swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools. Which is more important? The gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding. How blind! For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you are swearing by it and by everything on it. And when you swear by the temple you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore The more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, again, again? Hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the inside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like religious people, but inwardly, your hearts filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves, and you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion and you will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the mother of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechi, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, The city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her cheeks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. And now, look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord.
1: Now, if you don't have your Bible there, please do turn back to Matthew chapter 23, if you dare, uh, as we look at this passage this morning. Now, when you come out of a church service, I wonder how you feel How do you feel? That's maybe a strange question. Uh, I don't just mean here in West Kilbride necessarily. I'm speaking a little bit more uh, generally. But when you come out of a church service, how do you feel? Do you feel better or worse than when you came in? You know when you go to the optician and you do your sight test and you put on these very strange kind of glasses and they give you one lens and then you give you another lens and they say, "Is it better, or is it worse?" And I'm usually there thinking, "I have no idea. I'm just going to guess." But how do you feel when you leave church, a church service, do you feel better, or do you feel worse? Do you feel more burdened or less burdened than you did before? The fact is, if we come out of a church service more burdened than before then something mustn't quite be right. Is that not true? Now, I'm not suggesting that all services ought to be about leaving and necessarily feeling good about ourselves. This isn't mass self-help that we are doing this morning, and there is a place for being challenged in our faith. But when you read a passage like Matthew chapter 23, you understand that the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law were putting unreasonable demands upon the people. And you see this in verse 4 of chapter 23 that we read this morning, that the Pharisees were demanding more and more from the people that nothing was ever good enough, and the people would be crushed, and the Pharisees wouldn't care, because for them it was all about status and all about honor. And whilst they were careful about some minute aspects of the law, they could often be found wanting in terms of the major aspects of the law, particularly surrounding their attitude. Now, as you probably gathered as we were going through this passage this morning, this is quite a difficult passage. But I wanted to start the sermon this way this morning, to say that that Jesus comes to set us free. He comes to set us free. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling quite burdened down, I hope you don't leave this place today feeling even worse than you did before. That's not the purpose of this. And it's also not the purpose of why Jesus came. Because Jesus comes to set us free. Is that not true? Jesus says... Take my burden upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, if you come to a church service and you're you're burdened down, you shouldn't leave feeling more burdened down. Because the reality is that Jesus brings freedom. He brings hope. And the gospel message is not about working harder. It's about trusting in Jesus being made new, and then living a life to his glory. You see, we're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Is that not true? Now, as you probably gather, today's passage is a difficult one, as Jesus really takes it to the religious leaders. And he certainly does not mince his words, does he? Now, we see some general comments in verses 1 through to 12, and then from verse 13 through to 36, we, we see Jesus really going after the Pharisees and the religious leaders with the seven sorrows, as we have in the New Living Translation, or woes, as it is in other translations. So, first of all, let's look at the general comments in verses 1 to 12. Well, Jesus says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. They hold that role. But there is a problem. They don't practice what they teach. And we see in verse 5 that everything is for show in terms of their outward appearance. They love the places of honor. They love to receive respectful greetings and be called a rabbi. And if we've learned anything from Jesus' ministry in the rest of Matthew's gospel, we know that Jesus is bringing in a kingdom where everything is turned upside down. And one of the values of the kingdom is humility. But for the Pharisees and religious leaders, for them, it's all about pride. It's all about show. It's all about making themselves look good. And we have to make sure as individual Christians and as a church that we model the kingdom that Jesus brings in. You see how often it is that the church is accused of hypocrisy because of moral failure of church leaders and because of not practicing what it preaches. And there will be many in society who view the church as hypocritical. Because there is a perception, sometimes even fed by the church, that the church is only for those who are holy. It's only for those who have it together. That it's only for those who are good people. Whereas actually the church is full of sinners who are no better than anyone else. We're simply saved by the grace of God. And so we can't boast in ourselves. We can't boast that that God has saved us because we're better than those people out there. It just isn't true. God has saved us only by grace. And after all, what did Jesus say? He came not for the righteous. He came for the sick. And so as we're gathered here this morning, we are the sick people. That's who we are. And God is our physician. He is our doctor. He's the one who brings healing and the one who brings hope. So in these first 12 verses, we see that the Pharisees and the religious leaders, who should know better, are leading the people astray and are burdening the people down. And there's a warning here for us to make sure that we are not like the Pharisees in that way. But then in verses 13 through to 36, we see Jesus using extremely strong language with these seven woes or these seven uh, sorrows. Now, these sorrows or woes are judgment upon the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And some think that they are kind of a a counterbalance to to the beatitudes that we see earlier in Matthew's gospel. Remember uh, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus says, blessed are those. Well, this is kind of the counterbalance here uh, in Matthew 23. Now, you'll be delighted to know that we simply do not have the time to go through every single sorrow this morning in detail. So there are two main things that I want you to notice about them. Firstly, did you notice that six of the seven start the same way? I hope you noticed that this morning. As Nicole read it, and there was this phrase that was that was repeated, where it says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? Jesus doesn't mince his words, does he? And he is warning the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of the judgment to come because of their attitude. And so six of the seven begin that way. And the other sorrow, it says, blind guides what sorrow awaits you. So they all have strong words of judgment for the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Now, the second main thing I want you to notice about these sorrows is that these seven sorrows or woes can be split up into three pairs and one standalone. Okay? It's a good way to look at it. Three pairs and one standalone. Now, interestingly, seven, of course, is like the perfect number, isn't it, in the Bible? And so, that's why there's probably seven. But there are three pairs and one standalone. Firstly, If you look at verses 13 through to 15, these first two woes can be categorized as setting up spiritual roadblocks for others. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were part of the religious leaders of Israel, and they should have been leading people closer to God. That should have been their aim. However, instead, Jesus says that they shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and make people twice the children of hell. That's strong words, isn't it? Don't know if I would get away with that if I preached that every Sunday morning. But you get the point. They should genuinely be leading people towards God and closer to God, but they are not. They're drawing them away from God. That's why judgment is going to come upon them. Next, look at verses 16 through to 24 this third and fourth sorrow have to do with spiritual priorities. You see, the religious leaders of the day, they'd set up loopholes and taking taking oaths and making promises uh, so that people could get out of a promise they didn't really want to keep. And so that you could swear by uh, the temple and get out of it, but not if you swore by the gold of the, the temple. And Jesus said, this is nonsense." What a nonsense this is. You're just making up loopholes to get out of something. Now, the temple represents God. The altar represents worship of God. And any vow that is made in connection with God should be kept. That's Jesus' point. Further, the religious leaders were concerned about the the specific letter of law-keeping, of the tithe of something as small as their own herb garden. And yet they've neglected the major traits of following God. Like justice, mercy, faithfulness. And Jesus said, this is like straining a gnat of your drink. And then swallowing a camel. Great image that, isn't it? You see, the religious leaders should have prioritized that which was most important when it comes to following God. Mercy. Justice. But they don't. What instead are they emphasizing? They're saying, well, you know, this bit of, I don't know, can you name a hair, basil or whatever, you know, when I sell that, you know, then I'll give a tenth, you know, one P will go into, you know, the, the, the temple coffers. That's so basically what they're doing. And they don't care about the big things. The third pair of sorrows are verses 25 to 28. Now, all of these woes condemn hypocrisy, and this pair, the fifth and sixth, focus on spiritual hypocrisy. Because the the leaders, these Pharisees, they appear on the outside to be spiritual and to be followers of God, but in reality, in the inside, they are filthy and they're dying. And it's on the inside that's what really matters. That's what Jesus is saying. You look good on the outside, but on the inside. It's just filthiness. You see, the religious leaders were supposed to be genuinely filled with godliness on the inside. But they aren't. And they're condemned. And then lastly, in terms of the sorrows, look at verses 29 to 32. This seventh sorrow has to do with spiritual persecution. The religious leaders claim to love and support the prophets and messengers of God. They claim that they would not have been like the, the Jewish leaders of the past who persecuted the messengers of God. And yet Jesus says instead that they are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets and would follow in the same footsteps of their ancestors. You see, the religious leaders and the Pharisees should have supported the work of the ones that God sent the prophets. But instead, they don't. And finally, Jesus offers this striking condemnation of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you look at verses 33 to 36, the scathing description that he uses is the same that John the Baptist uses of the religious leaders. He calls them sons of vipers. Basically, he's saying, they are snakes, and they are children of snakes. And Jesus said that the religious leaders and Pharisees are just as guilty as those evil pretenders of the past, and that judgment awaits them as well. And so Jesus levels these warnings directly for the religious pretenders. If there's any hope for them, they must heed these warnings. Now, I realize we've kind of skated over these seven uh, woes very quickly. As we go through this, you cannot escape the fact that these are strong words from Jesus. Jesus is not about making friends and influencing people, is he? Now, remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He knows what is ahead of him, but he's not afraid to call out hypocrisy. He's not afraid to call out the religious leaders because there is no place for hypocrisy. There is no place for religiosity in the church or in the Christian life. And it's something that we must guard ourselves against because there are dire consequences if we're hypocrites. There is judgment. So let's make sure that we are not blind guides. Let's make sure that we're not leading people astray, that we're not about show and and full of pride, but rather we follow Jesus who is our ultimate example because he's the one who's humble. He's the one who washes the disciples' feet and that's what we are called also to do. To love as Jesus has loved. Because we need to recognize that we are sinners who are saved by grace. Now, if we finished at verse 36 today, we might leave this place, maybe not burdened, but maybe feeling a bit chastened. Or maybe even wondering about the strength of Jesus' message, because this certainly isn't Jesus who is meek and mild, is it? But that's why these last three verses, verses 37 to 39 are so important. See, we could have just done, you know, a whole... Imagine if we'd done a series on the seven woes and taken seven weeks. It would have been hard going, wouldn't it? Even looking at verses 1 through to 36 is pretty tough going. But look at verses 37 to 39. So if you've fallen asleep and you're thinking, I don't know what's going on, look at verses 37 to 39. You see, it's not as if Jesus is giving out these woes and sorrows and this condemnation and this judgment. It's not as if Jesus is doing this gladly. Maybe you remember a teacher at school, and please remember, I'm I'm married to a teacher, so this is not a go at teachers, but it's the only example I can think of. And maybe you remember a teacher at school who, when you stepped over the mark. And maybe you were, I don't know, talking in class or doing something far worse or throwing rubbers around or not doing your homework. Or Some of you were probably badly behaved at school, all right? But maybe there was a teacher who seemed almost to take delight in giving you detention or giving you the belt or whatever punishment it would be back in the day. You know that kind of teacher? And if we read verses 1 to 36, Maybe we think, you know, Jesus is really happy to be, to be handing out this judgment. But look at verses 37 to 39. Because here we see Jesus grieving over Jerusalem. Grieving over the city and the people who have rejected him. And Jesus says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. You can hear the longing in Jesus' heart, can't you? You see, he longs to to gather the people and protect them and love them. But then we see the last part of verse 37. But you wouldn't let me but you wouldn't let me. I long to protect you, to love you, but you wouldn't let me. You see, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people, they've rejected Jesus. And because they have rejected Jesus, Jesus rejects them. Their house is abandoned and desolate. But what want you to see is Jesus doesn't want it to be this way. He doesn't take delight in this judgment and in these woes. He longs for people to come to him. It grieves his heart when people don't come to him. This is the longing heart of God. And despite the harshness of the rest of the address, Jesus expresses here a note of sorrow more than anger. Now, don't skate over the last verse either because it ties up all that has gone before to what comes next in Matthew's gospel. You see, remember this this whole section of teaching stems from the triumphal entry. Remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey? And the religious leaders becoming indignant that the people cried out as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and as they were waving their palm branches in the air, remember what they said, Hosanna to the Son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what do we find Jesus quoting at the end of chapter 23? For I tell you, you'll not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same words from Psalm 118. So you see how this encapsulates this section of teaching. You see, Jesus is just about to start teaching on the end times and the second coming. God willing, we'll begin that next week. And at Jesus' return, at his second coming, people will acclaim him with these words from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, whether this will reflect genuine repentance and acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah, or the mournful, grudging acknowledgement of his true identity before they go to judgment, is difficult to determine. But we know that there will be a day when every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, And every knee will bow bow before him, willing or not. Now this has been a, a difficult passage today. There is much warning to us as to how we live out our lives. and We must heed Jesus' words and follow his kingdom ways rather than the ways of the Pharisees, which leads to destruction. And let us always remember that God longs for us to come to him for protection. He's not a vindictive God who's waiting to smite us, as that teacher did way in the past. He mourns over those who are lost. He longs for us to come to him, to know him, to serve him, to love him. So do you say in your heart this morning, grudgingly, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because you don't really mean it. Or do you say it gladly? Knowing that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God and to know hope and to know life. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, as we come to the end of this section of teaching, Jesus is making it very clear as to who he is. He rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, saying, I am the Messiah. In all his teaching, he is saying, I am the Messiah. Even when the Pharisees are trying to trip him up and trap him in his words, he is saying, I am the Messiah. All the way through he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the Son of God. And even all these years later as we look at this section of teaching the question for us is do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe he is the Son of God? You see if you come to church this morning and you're burdened down then the only way to relieve that burden is to trust in Jesus Jesus who says his burden is easy and his yoke is light that's not to say that our life will become necessarily easier but the wonderful thing is Jesus is with us and Jesus will strengthen us and Jesus will help us through And at the end of time, we will be with Jesus forever. So when you look at this section of teaching, do you say grudgingly in your heart, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Or do you say joyfully, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Shall we just pray together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much in this passage today and in many ways. We've only skated over it. We've only scratched the surface of what's going on here. Maybe we're shocked by the strength of Jesus' words towards the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But Father, they were so hypocritical in how they were leading the people, doing everything For sure. Wanting to earn human praise. Rather than praise from you. And as we've been looking at the life of Jesus. We see how Jesus brings in a very different idea of the kingdom. Because he is the servant king. He is the one who washes the disciples feet. He is the one who serves us. By going to the cross, by paying the price for our sin, taking the punishment that we deserve, that we might know forgiveness and hope and life. And Father, we see also the strong wording, the sorrows that will come upon those who are hypocritical, like the Pharisees were that there are consequences for our sin and our disobedience, that there are consequences for rejecting Jesus. And we pray that we would take that seriously today, that there is a judgment to come. But Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to draw close to Jesus, to put our faith and trust in him, Because we recognize that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, then we have nothing to fear. Because he wants us to come to him. He wants us to put our faith and trust in him. He wants us to know eternal life with the Father forever. And so at the end of this passage, we see the grieving that Jesus has over Jerusalem. And how he sees that the people are rejecting him. Heavenly Father, help us not to reject Jesus this day. So Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us through this passage today. That you would challenge us. And that you would remind us. That you're a God of grace. A God of love. A God of justice. A God in whom we can trust. So Father, speak to us. And bless us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.